0: Well good morning, my name is Todd Steele, Um, I'm an elder here at Transform. If you're new or visiting, um, I get to fill in every once in a while when Mike is on vacation, um, which he's just coming towards the end of that and now he should return next week. Um, But I'm super honored and excited to get to share God's Word with you. So when I was about 10 years old, in the year of our Lord, 2001, <laughs> a film came out that, I am not exaggerating, changed my life forever. Um, if you ask my wife, it is an embarrassingly fundamental part of my personality. <laughs> um, the film in question was called The Lord of the Rings. Uh, yeah, I'm a big dork, I apologize. Um, It was the first in Peter Jackson's trilogy of films based on the book by J.R.R. Tolkien. And I remember just being a 10-year-old, just being captivated for the three-hour movie. And when I was 10, you couldn't get me to pay attention to anything for for three minutes. But this film and the films after it, they had me hook, line, and sinker. As I grew older, I eventually, I read the books, and I tried to read and absorb as much of J.R. Tolkien's writings as I could. And although I didn't realize it at the time, while I was doing this, they were also teaching me theology. J.R. Tolkien was deeply, deeply Catholic. And while his books are not meant to be biblical allegory like his colleague C.S. Lewis Narnia series was, which I also ingested pretty voraciously, <laughs> his narratives are dripping with Christian thought and theology. The clearest example being in the characters he sets his, his narratives around. The main characters of his stories um, are the hobbits. If you don't know, and this is, I'm getting somewhere, I promise. I'm, I didn't just come up here to be a big dumb dork in front of you guys. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Hobbits, are, they're creatures that Tolkien invented for his stories. They're very short, about three and a half feet tall. They don't wear shoes. They're a little bit chubby, and their favorite thing is food, like above all else. So when I describe a figure like that, does that, does that ring to the thought of a knight in shining armor, or, or do you more picture something akin to a toddler? It's more like a toddler. I was literally, as I was sitting in my kitchen table taking these notes, I saw my two-year-old son sitting against, we have like a measuring board to track how tall the kids are. Like he's, he's sitting against that, eating a snack, like no shoes. He's, I can see because he's against the measuring board. He's just above three feet tall. I was like, this is, um, this is like what my favorite story ever is written about. Is this two-year-old with a snack, basically. This, this is juxtaposed to, to literally like every other hero in every other story mankind has produced. The rest of culture tells us stories like Hercules and Gilgamesh and Bruce Willis. <laughs> Figures who take and kill to achieve their goals. Even if their goals are honorable, they're still achieved by force. Even consider... Stories like King Arthur and Robin Hood. They were written at the height of Western Christendom. And they're still warriors who kill and steal. That is contradictory to the message that Scripture teaches. And Tolkien understood this. Greatness is not gained by force. It is not gained by violence. It is not gained by willpower. It is not the warriors or the proud who are great. It's the small ones that are great. Tolkien understood Matthew 5. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. So, that leads me to the question. Do you want to be great? Do you want to be great? The answer should be yes, by the way. I know like we Christians, we, we find it hard to say yes to, to questions like that because we want to present as humble Right, But we all want to be great. We want to be a great parent. We want to be a great spouse, a great employee, a great neighbor. Wanting greatness and being great are not bad things. And of themselves, they're not bad at all. It's how you define what's greatness. So how do you define greatness? Our text this morning is going to talk to us about that. It's going to be in in Mark chapter 9. Uh, starting in verse 30. So if you, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and pull it out and turn to Mark 9. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the pews in front of you. Um, Before context, we need to remember the three events that precede this passage. So that, that Mike and BJ have talked about the last several weeks, we, we need to have these in our minds. So the first one takes place in, in Mark 8. But Jesus is with his disciples and he asks, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers correctly. He says, you are the Messiah. And then Peter then tries to correct said Messiah, said Lord of all, and has to be corrected. The second event is Jesus giving them physical proof that he's the Messiah as he takes Peter, James, and John on the mount and reveals himself and transfigures himself and shows them all of his glory. Again, Peter opens his mouth and has to be corrected. The third is what B.J. talked about last week. Um, He's covered the demon-possessed boy that Jesus healed that the disciples were unable to heal. Um, So with all that in mind, Mark chapter 9, verse 30. I'll read the whole thing, then we'll go into it. It goes like this. Then they left that place and made their way through Galilee, But he did not want anyone to know it. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement. And they were afraid to ask him. They came to Capernaum when he was in the house. He asked them, What were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent. Because they did. Because on the way... They had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. He took a child, had him stand among them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one little child, such as this, in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but him who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. So, as they're traveling from this point, they are heading towards Jerusalem. This this passage of, or this section of Scripture in, in Mark is kind of treated as its own third that exists between Jesus teaching um, the crowds, and then He's traveling to Jerusalem, and then the final section is Him in Jerusalem. So at this point, they are heading towards Jerusalem, towards their confrontation with the high priest, towards his betrayal, towards his trial, his execution, and eventual resurrection. Jesus wants the disciples prepared. He wants them to know what's going to happen. So he's careful to avoid the crowds at this time so that he can give them their private lessons. Um, maybe not as intense, but if it can be sort of thought about like boot camp. Uh, for those of you who are in the armed service, first off, thank you for your service. But secondly... If basic training had been, you know, you show up 9 a.m. every day, get an hour for lunch, go home to your family at 5, weekends off, casual Fridays, birthday parties in the break room, would it have been as effective as what real basic training is? No, part of the system is you live, eat, and sleep in the world of the military. They wire your brain to make certain concepts habit to you. Now, Jesus isn't making them do burpees till they throw up. <laughs> um, but he needs their complete and undivided attention for what he has to say. He is going to die. He's fully aware of it. He's going to be arrested. He will be tried in a mock court. He will be publicly executed. And then he will rise from the dead. This is what Jesus came to do. This was the plan from the beginning. Way back in the beginning in Genesis 3, after the man and the woman had taken the fruit that they were forbade from taking at the words of the deceiving serpent, this is the curse that God gives to the snake in Genesis three fourteen. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any other livestock and more than any other wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. And here it is. I will put hostility between you and the woman in between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. That's what Jesus is telling them is about to happen. The serpent is going to be crushed, but not for nothing. There will be a price. There will be a sacrifice, and that's what Jesus is heading towards, and that's what he wants his disciples to be prepared for. But, as th- verse 32 says, they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask. The imagination of the first century Jew did not and almost could not include a messiah that died. Messiahs don't die according to all the teachings of the day. Messiahs conquer. They wanted a king who would gather the forces of Israel and kick out the Romans. They would establish a worldwide kingdom that put them at the top of the food chain. They wanted it to happen to for them What their enemies were doing. They wanted to happen to the enemies what was happening to them. Ironically, they did not want a Messiah that the scriptures promised. They wanted a Messiah that represented the heroes of their oppressors. They didn't want Jesus, they wanted Hercules which is kind of the story of Israel. If you've you've read through the Old Testament, think of Samuel. The children of Israel come to him, and they say, we want a king. Give us a king. All the nations have one. Why can't we have one? And it's because God was supposed to be their king. Yahweh was supposed to sit on their throne, not some strong man and not some bully. But they insisted. They asked for a king, and so God gave them a king. And it went good for about a minute. And then... It was all downhill from there, like God said it would be. So I have to ask, is Jesus your king? Or is it the other stuff based on the value system of the world? Is that your king? This is the same question that Jesus is putting to the disciples. Can you follow someone who did not just die, but let himself die? Can you follow a king who has all the power to defeat all of his enemies and yours with just a thought, but instead gives himself over willingly? Ask for God to forgive them while they're killing him. Can you follow a king like that? We should ask ourselves that next time we're being mildly disrespected. Ask yourself that next time you're being mistreated in the tiniest way and see how you respond. We lose it over traffic. Isaac, I love you, but I get so upset when I see you on the, on the road. <laughs> like, <laughs> Isaac's a traffic flagger. I get so angry. For I live in Rathroom, and for a while, there this summer, there was no way in or out of Rathroom without hitting traffic, and it would infuriate me beyond belief. We claim allegiance to a king who gave everything away for us. And we act like babies when he asks for the tiniest thing in return. And it's funny because it, in these passages, especially like these last kind of chapter and a half of Mark we've been looking at, we like to make fun of the disciples. We like to call them idiots because they're not getting it. They're swinging and missing over and over again. But we do that. That's us. It's it's Mark is putting a mirror up to us and our lives. And we'll see that... Further, in verse 33, they came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent, because on the way they had been arguing over with one another about who was the greatest. Have you ever been so completely like on a different wavelength with someone else? Like, Jesus and the disciples are not just They're not on the same page. They're in different bookstores. Jesus is like in the library of Congress with like a stack of books and and so much wisdom and knowledge. And the disciples are hanging around like a closed down Barnes & Noble where there's like an 80s microwave cookbook and a reality TV star autobiography. Jesus is telling them, I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be handed over to the authorities. They're going to kill me. And the disciples are arguing about who's the coolest. Look, look. look obviously, obviously, Jesus will be king of Jerusalem. Uh, we understand that, but he's going to make me king over the rest of Israel. You guys, you'll probably be sent away to some Gentile countries to keep them in line. But Jesus is going to want me right at his right hand. Are you kidding? Especially, remember the context. Think. I, I, I think when we're going through a book in church our concept of times in the narratives gets a little bit fuzzy. Because um, for us, Mark 8 was a month ago. But for them, Peter's confession that Jesus was the Messiah was probably just a few days or maybe a week or two at the most. But much closer in the timeline. These things where they've just been whiffing it have happened very recently and they're arguing over who the greatest is. They've been, they've been swinging and missing a lot. Very recently. Peter got that one hit that one time. But after that, it's all been miss- misses. Imagine a football team. I'm, I'm, I know I'm crossing my sports metaphors. I apologize. But imagine a football team that's like 0 and 12, and they're arguing about who's going to keep the Super Bowl trophy. What? The dissonance between what Jesus is teaching and what they're thinking about is both shocking and yet familiar this is us, this is me, I'm like this. The amount of time my values have gotten in the way of what the kingdom's values is a lot. The amount of times that what I want, what I cared about, what my priorities were, were set over what the scriptures say my priorities should be should, is insane. The amount of times I later on realized, man, I could have, I could have shown that person love. I could have shared joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, fruits of the Spirit. But I didn't. I was about me and my thing. I was about King Todd, not King Jesus. Are you about King you or Queen you? I don't want to leave out the ladies. Are you concerned with what makes you great in the eyes of people who are not Jesus? It's interesting, we know, we know when we're like this. And because the disciples know too, they're quiet. They didn't want to answer Jesus. They're embarrassed. They know they messed up, and we know it too. We all know exactly when we're setting ourselves before Jesus and before others. But thankfully, Jesus has an infinite amount of patience for both the disciples and for us. Stretching, or sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. So this is, this is a very common verse that Christians use a lot. We know it well. And because of that, I think we miss the weirdness of it. To be first, you've got to be last. Think about that logically. It doesn't, doesn't actually make sense. If you want to be first, you have to be last. If you want to be over here, you've got to be over here. That doesn't make sense. You know, you're turning in dirt, and you want to go, you got to turn right to go left. Don't understand what that means. I've seen that movie a thousand times. Those are opposites. To be first is to be last. It, it, imagine a kid in, in college Saying, yeah, I want to be a surgeon, so I'm going to go to law school. That's what, logically, the sentence structure sounds like. It's paradoxical, but so is this whole thing. Jesus establishes that he is the Messiah. He is meant to be king of the world. That is fact in the mind of the disciples at this point. They've claimed it, they've witnessed his glory, and he is the one meant to be running this whole show. But he's going to die. That doesn't make any sense. Or we have a choice in front of us. Either Jesus' values are backwards and upside down, or ours are. It is not that if you want to do one thing, you've actually got to do the opposite. It doesn't mean that if you want to be one thing, you've got to do the other. It's that greatness is not measured the way we are accustomed to measuring it. Greatness is measured By those who serve. Greatness is not measured by those who have the most authority or money or influence. It's not whoever dies with the most toys wins. The one that is great is the one who serves much and loves much. That's the definition set by God. That was the standard in Genesis 2. When Jesus says whoever wants to be first must be last, he's not turning something on his head. He's turning it off its head. He's setting it right side up. It's not a software update. It's a factory reset. Which is why he says this next thing. He took a child, had him stand among them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but him who sent me. He welcomes a little child. In this day and age, and really for most of history, and really in a lot of regions around the world today that is not the West, excuse me, children are not given much value in society. Of course, their individual families love them, um, but on a societal level, because a child cannot produce, or contribute, or earn, They had no value. They had zero capital. Socially, economically, politically. So why pay attention to them? Why dedicate any of your precious capital to them if you can't get any back? Different question, but the same. Why dedicate yourself to a crucified Messiah? Jesus made himself lower than the child he was holding in that moment. The small, the humble, the poor, the forgotten and ignored, those are his people. To welcome one of them is to pr- proclaim kinship with them and therefore proclaim allegiance to the king of the small. Um, in Bethlehem, there's an old church. You know, when I say old, it was old. It was commissioned by Constantine in uh, 325 AD, almost 1,700 years ago. And later on, after at some point after the Ottoman conquest of Palestine in the 1500s, the church was largely left in decay, which led people to think that it was all right to bring their livestock into the building. So as a result, they rebuilt the doorway to be quite small. And there's a Eli. There should be a picture of that in the slides. This is this is the Church of. Um, I didn't write down the name. <laughs> uh, just Google small door church Bethlehem and, and you'll find the name. <laughs> um, they built, they rebuilt this little doorway so, so cows and, and horses couldn't be taken into the church. In fact, it was so small that people had to crouch down to enter the building. You have to make yourself small to enter this church it was later renamed the door of humility because as you're entering the church you're making yourself a living example of what it means to follow jesus you are shrinking so you can enter in to who jesus really is to paraphrase john the baptist in john 3 you must decrease and jesus must increase this passage mark 30 is not it's not a lesson in humility it's not a suggestion to be nicer to people. Although those are good things to do. It is a reassigning of priorities. Jesus, the king of the universe, made all, knows all. He, in, he invented a few things. I don't know if you've heard of them. Time, space, matter, those small, non-consequential inventions. He is the author of life. Yahweh, the great I am, God above all, came to earth as a human and died a criminal's death. Now he rose from the dead. Don't forget that. But the very first became the very last so that he might restore us to relationship with him. Worship team, you can come up. Do you want to be great? Greatness is measured by serving and by loving, especially to those who have nothing to offer in return. It is measured by walking with people as far as Jesus would walk with them. How far did Jesus walk? He walked to the cross. He walked to his death for people. And if that's what it takes, that's what we must be willing to do as well. My prayer is that we would align our views of what greatness is with that of what Jesus says it is. And that we would run after that greatness. That we would seek to be great in the kingdom of heaven, not the kingdom of man. And that we would give everything up for the one who gave everything up for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again I pray that your spirit be the one speaking, not not a human. Lord, I pray that we would serve others before we ourselves are served. That we would make ourselves last. That we would seek greatness in the way You define greatness. That we would love and care for and cherish those around us, whether they can reciprocate or not, Father. Lord, I pray all these things in Your name. Amen.